0: Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. This episode is a recording of a live event that I did with Jonathan Haidt, Greg Lukianoff, and Ricky Schlott. Jonathan Haidt is a professor at the NYU Stern School of Business. He's also the co-founder of Heterodox Academy, which I once wrote a blog post for back when I was probably 21 years old. And he's the author of many books, including The Happiness Hypothesis, The Righteous Mind, and The Coddling of the American Mind, with his co-author, Gregory Lukianoff. Greg is the president of FIRE, which is the foundation for individual rights in education and probably the preeminent defender of free speech on college campuses. He's also the producer of several documentaries about free speech, and he's a trained lawyer. Ricky Schlott is a columnist for the New York Post, a fellow at FIRE, a contributor at Reason Magazine, and the host of the Lost Debate podcast. We all discuss what has changed since John and Greg published The Coddling of the American Mind back in 2018. We talk about the effect of social media on political polarization and mental health. We discuss John's recent viral Atlantic essay called Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid, and lots of other related topics. Unfortunately, because of the constraints of the live event, this is a shorter podcast than usual but I'm getting John back on the podcast very soon to have a full-length discussion about all this stuff. So without further ado, John Haidt, Greg Lukianoff, and Ricky Schlott. All right. Thank you guys so much for coming. I'm really excited to talk to the three of you. And I won't introduce you again since you were already introduced. So let's just get right to it. So it's been four years since The Coddling of the American Mind uh, was published, almost four years. And my question, and I I really don't have an answer to this. I'm curious what, what both of you think, and then we'll get to Ricky in a moment. Have the problems you described in that book gotten worse, better, or stayed the same in
1: the past four years? Okay, well, I'll start. The progression has been very similar since 2015. When Greg came to me in May of 2014 said, John, this weird stuff is happening. We'd met actually at Jerry Orstrom's apartment and this weird stuff is happening on campus and he told me his idea. And I thought it was brilliant because I just began to see it at NYU as well. Students acting as though words and speakers and ideas are dangerous, violent even. And it was beyond our comprehension. We couldn't understand it, but Greg had this diagnosis. Anyway, so we wrote up the article, the, the Carly in the American Mind, and people said, oh, come on, you're cherry picking. This is just a few examples uh, from a few colleges. This isn't anything real. So that's August of 2015. Five months later, four months later at Halloween, boom, everything blows up. But people still say, well, OK, OK. So it's not <laughs> cherry picking, but it's just college. And, you know, when they got into the real world, like, they can't do this at Goldman Sachs. They can't do this at Google. So, you know, it's just college. College kids said, so, well, OK, we'll, we'll see. And then, boom, as soon you know, as they begin to graduate, as these trends go national. And actually, the exact same stuff was happening at the same time in Canada and the U.K. as well. So it's always been this thing of we've been sort of ahead of the curve because Gen Z were the canaries in the coal mine. What I've been writing is how social media has transformed social relations in ways that make it toxic to institutions and young people in particular. It's dissolving everything, but it first hit Gen Z. And so the problems were first found on campus, but they've been they're spreading out and out and out. So when Greg and I wrote our book, Greg came to me and said, we got to turn this into a book. This problem is just getting worse and worse. And when we wrote the book, we were going to have a chapter on this problem in the corporate world. But at the time, it was just anecdotes. This is 2017. Like, we're beginning to hear about this in the Google memo and all kinds of stuff. But we don't have data on it. It's just anecdotes. So we have to lock down the book. It comes out in September of 2018. And then right then, it's like, boom, everywhere in the corporate world. So the answer is gotten worse in every dimension, in every place we look, and
2: internationally. Yeah, what I've seen since 2020, there were previous bad spots for freedom of speech on campus, in in my experience. 2007 was really bad, but that was all administrator-driven. 2015 was concerning because there was 100 campuses across the country where that included activists demanding that student newspapers be shut down. Of course, there was the Crustacus event. There was also Dean Spellman, oh, you yeah. know, being forced out, and, like very you know kind of shocking incidents. And 2017, we saw violence for the first time. But I have never seen anything as bad as things got in 2020. We went from you know a busy year at FIRE is a thousand case submissions. We got 1500 during a time when 80 percent of campuses were closed. We started actually tracking the number of professors getting in trouble. We're now almost at 600 professors uh, targeted by usually students at this point to be fired or punished in some way. Of those 600, the 600 is, is since 2015. About 400 of those are just since 2020. About, I'd say about three quarters of those, the professor gets punished in some way. About one fifth of the time, the professor gets fired. That includes 30 tenured professors fired for what they said or what they, or their research, which up until 10 years ago, as, from my lawyer standpoint, that, that was impossible. And it's happening pretty regularly now. And so it's amazing. And of course, you have people throw up these arguments that this isn't really happening. Cancel culture isn't real. And they make arguments like, oh, but there's 6,000 schools. This is a drop in the bucket. And it's like, no, there are about 600 schools that 80% of four-year students attend. But when you look at like my alma mater, Stanford, 20, you know, 20 attempts to get professors fired. And that's not even counting students. Um, so it's really, it's been the most disheartening two and a half years of my career.
0: Okay, let's get Ricky in on this. So before the podcast started, we were talking about the fact that you read Coddling of the American Mind. Was it in 2015 when you had just enrolled?
3: It was in 2018. It was my, oh, in 2018. the fall of my freshman year at NYU. And I had just gotten to campus and... In my orientation, they they said, here's your NYU ID card. On the back, here's the infirmary, the emergency hotline, and here's the bias report hotline. And all of a sudden, speakers are getting shouted down on campus. I started hiding my Thomas Sowell books in my dresser just in case anyone saw them. And so I was in the city alone. I was very concerned by what I was seeing socially, and I felt very isolated. And then I found this book, and I was like, wow, I'm recognizing all the symptoms here. And here are two experts that are really finding the root causes. And I was just so blown away and so comforted by this explanation. And unfortunately, as they're saying, I've seen everything get worse and worse and worse, but um, they were obviously just so ahead of the curve in recognizing these trends.
0: So when I was at Columbia, my friend had a picture of Reagan on his wall. And if he went out on a date and the date went well and a girl wanted to come back, he would turn the picture over. (laughs) And then if she wanted to go on a second date, he would consider turning it up. And by a third date, he would say, okay, there's actually something here. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> you no, know,
1: that's actually not a bad strategy for employment either.
0: <laughs> so one question I have is between 2016 and 2020, it was very easy for people to dismiss the problems you're describing by saying, okay, all that sounds annoying and dumb, but we have a literal white supremacist, fascist, et cetera, or or just authoritarian or dangerous lunatic in the White House, isn't that the much bigger threat? I think that made it difficult for people who care about this issue of free speech and viewpoint diversity on campus to sort of fight for that issue because there was always this sort of clapback. I'm curious, to what extent do you think Trump exacerbated this problem or does it just, is it totally independent of Trump?
2: Oh, no. I think there were two accelerants. So one of the things we talk about, we talk about six causal threads of why we think the problems we're seeing on campus and with Generation Z happened. And social media, in some ways, it did create new phenomena, but it also accelerated a lot of existing ones. Like polarization went much faster. Like a lot of these existing uh, fissures got a lot worse, a lot quicker. But there were two accelerants. And the election of Trump, I mean, it just, it sped a lot of that polarization up. A lot of the sort of paranoia got worse. So I, I do think that the intensity of that really really made for a much crazier situation.
1: I would add that the same trends were happening in Canada and the UK. So Trump was not necessary, but Trump did mask a lot of what was going on. He made things a lot worse, but he also masked a lot of what was going on as did COVID. So for example, so I was running, I co-founded Heterodox Academy in 2015. It was just a faculty initiative of social scientists studying what are the effects when we lose diversity and everyone's on the same team? And my job was kind of fun until Trump was elected. And all of a sudden, I was so far out on thin ice because the goal was to convince, you know, center left or just or people are true liberals that, you know what, we actually need you know free speech, viewpoint diversity. And suddenly, whatever I did, it was platforming or facilitating fascists, right wingers, Trump, racists. So it became really scary. And we had people quit right away. People are afraid to be associated with us because, you know, I've spent much of my career studying tribalism and the us-against-them mindset. We evolved for intergroup conflict. We evolved for war. And as soon as the war is declared, there can be no nuance. There's beautiful writings from, you know, the a- ancient Greeks about this. Um, George Orwell, I just came across something from George Orwell. He says, if you write about, in the 30s, you know, if you write about the problems of British slums, Suddenly you're giving fuel to the Nazis, who this is before the war started. So what are you to do? And so, it was, so Trump had that effect. He made it very difficult for anyone on the left to actually take these problems seriously, which I believe are leading to just fatal flaws, or I'd say maybe lots of pyrrhic victories for the left that they're now suffering from.
2: So, Ricky, in terms of things that you saw other students that we, we talked about in the book, like what rang true in addition to what you've already said for people, for yourself or other people you knew?
3: Well, I think cancel culture certainly I saw explode in 2016 around the election when I was in high school and my boarding school. It was every all the, the eruption of the safe spaces, the cancel culture, the, the trigger warnings. Um, I would say in 2016, that was when I first saw the seeds of everything. And then certainly I also the social media chapter resonated with me enormously because I watched so many of my friends struggle with mental health and I could anecdotally pretty much correlate social media use or certainly Instagram use with how detrimental that seemed to be to them. And the amount of self harm that I saw among my friends and peers was staggering. It was shocking. And certainly I think that you guys were at the forefront of pointing out this is what's actually behind this trend and not a lot of people understood that yet. And I think has just continued to ring true since.
0: Yeah, I mean, so to prepare for this, I remember this one thing that happened in my friend group in 2015 that I thought perfectly illustrated the problem that we're talking about. It was 2015 and I was at that point, mainly a jazz musician, tapped into the subculture of New York City jazz musicians my age. And a friend of mine posted something on Facebook, posted a joke, a little silly joke about how ladies like a tenor saxophone player more than an alto saxophone player. It was just a silly little joke that showed, it was like a stick figure of an alto player with one girlfriend and a stick figure of a tenor player with like three girlfriends. It was just like something silly. And what followed was like a week-long Armageddon, end-of-the-world style argument involving dozens and dozens of people posting dozens of times a day over whether or not this particular post was sexist. And then it got into tangential issues. Is there sexism in the jazz community? Is there? And it was like this, you know, I thought to myself, five years before this, there was no venue on which such a bitter, bitter argument could take place. And it bled over into the real world. So now you see someone at the gig who you were on opposite sides of this Facebook post about And you're thinking, oh God, she hates me. Do do I hate her? You know, like, (laughs) and that to me was in a microcosm, sort of what's happened on social media with political
1: issues. So I'd just like to add on to because social media is it's more than an accelerant. It doesn't just make trends go faster. It transformed the nature of human relationships because it allowed everybody to attack everybody at any point and get points for it. And so two things that I've learned just since I. I finished writing this Atlantic article like a month ago or five weeks ago. Two things I've learned just since then. One, somebody sent me something about the transformative role of Tumblr. I never thought about Tumblr. Mm -hmm.
2: Tumblr But apparently
1: young women, it was young women on the left were all on Tumblr. And so this particular ideology of safe spaces and trigger warnings, all that really was nurtured on Tumblr. I can actually speak to that firsthand a little bit. just not So
0: when I was in high school... I got a Tumblr when I was fifteen, which which would have been maybe twenty eleven, because a girl I liked was on Tumblr. Okay, so I got a Tumblr so that I could be a part of her conversation with her and her friends. And what it, I wasn't actually interested in it. I was interested in her. But <laughs> what I learned as an outsider that ended up spending a lot of time on there is that there was this whole culture of talking about mental health, intersectional politics, oppression and power, the whole nine. That was Build as if it were sort of healthy and sort of telling you how to deal with mental health, when in reality it was glorifying things like cutting and all other sorts of behaviors, where it was like you had more status on Tumblr insofar as you could more credibly claim to be victimhood culture. A cut, a cut, someone who cut themselves and dealt with depression and all these.
3: Absolutely. I was like 12, I think, when I was on Tumblr because I wanted to reblog pretty pink pictures. Like that was just what was <laughs> happening in my mind at the time. But to your point, it's absolutely filled with this self-harm content, this depressive content. And unfortunately, in recent years, I think we've seen a lot of that move on to TikTok now and there's self-diagnosis videos. There's like this new trend of apparently girls getting Tourette's like tics just from the exposure. And so that same culture that kind of incubated on Tumblr has now moved into TikTok and is popping up in people's algorithms in an even more powerful way than it was back then.
1: John, could you describe the Atlantic article? Yeah, like yeah. Oh, sure. Okay, okay. So, so I had weird stuff begin happening at NYU for me in January of 2014, and then Greg comes to talk to me, and, you know, we write the article, and then after it comes out, as I said everything blew up. So I had a real feeling around then, 2014, 2014 to 2015, that something had changed in the fabric of space-time. Like God had doubled the gravitational constant or something had just changed everywhere. And I've been struggling to figure that out ever since then, ever since 2014, that, that lunch with Greg. And the coddling was a piece of it. We got some things wrong. We thought college was causing it. It wasn't. It was making it worse, but it wasn't causing it. So, But that was our first attempt to work it out. And I've made several other attempts. And it's only after I reread the Tower of Babel story that I got the right metaphor, at least a metaphor that really clicked. And the, you know, many of you, everybody knows sort of what the tower, you know, it's about, oh, you know, people build a tower and God knocks it over because they're too proud. But the key line from the story that a lot of people forget is the line where God says, let us go down and confound their language so that they will not understand one another. And when I reread that a year or two ago, I said, oh my God, that's it. That's what's happened to us. Because I've been writing about tribalism. I've been writing about the culture war since 2001, which is a you know, binary, left, right. Like, but no, Babel is about the fragmentation of everything. It turns everybody against everybody. And so a lot of our problems go back to, you know, cable TV and Fox News and and various media outlets in the 90s. That begins the fragmentation. That can breed distrust and that can breed uh, conspiracy theories, but it doesn't turn us all against each other. And it doesn't make us hate and fight everywhere all the time. That's Babel, where we're all divided. And so I was just trying to develop that metaphor and how, in a sense, we rebuilt the tower Technology in the you know in the '90s you know the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and we can all be united and this is only the beginning of what we will do to quote the Bible and the peak year when we just about finished the tower rebuilding it this human accomplishment is 2011 when it's now clear it begins with the Arab Spring and it ends with Occupy and this is the final triumph of democracy everyone has a voice what dictator can stand up to this this is also the year when Google Translate is now widely available on all phones. So literally, the curse of Babel, the division of humans into multiple incoherent languages, is ended in 2011. It's been downhill ever since. That was the high point. It's been downhill ever since, with a sharp fall-off in 2014. So that's what the Atlantic article is about. And then I bring in a lot of social psychology to explain why this is, and merging with a lot of the technological history to explain how it seemed like things were going so well. And it really is. It's almost a very literary situation we're living in, like this story of triumph from from 1989 to 2011. And then, boom, off a cliff. And we're confused. We don't know what the hell happened.
2: Yeah, I think about it kind of like all the world's a stage. Just the transformation of human dynamics when everybody is sort of playing to the cameras, so to speak. When everybody has the ability yeah. to project out what, what what their reality is, it turns into this nonstop reality show that, and it's as nasty and and unfortunately not brutish and short as people can be when they actually forget about the inter and the, the interrelationship. They care about that.
1: All the world is seven billion stages.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> so one thread of this that.
0: I'm very concerned about is the effect of Instagram in particular, maybe TikTok to an extent on uh, teenagers and tweens and in particular girls because of the ability to put these unrealistic filters on your face and your body and the constant feedback of putting your face and body out into the world and having the world judge you with a number of likes and the fact that it never turns off, you know, in America, TikTok never turns off in China. They have the, I don't know whether they call it, wisdom to turn it off after a certain point. So this is something I'm concerned about, but there have also been studies that have found fairly small effect sizes when looking at the overall correlation. So is this a case where there's a concentrated effect on a small subset of the population? And h- how do you parse this
1: research? And so, so let me start with the research, and then I'd like to turn it over to, to Ricky to talk about what's actually happening to the girls. So, many people have heard that the effect size of social media on mental health is small. You might have heard it's no larger than that of eating potatoes or wearing eyeglasses, because it comes from one study in 2019 that did a big advanced statistical analysis on three large data sets. And what they found was that the correlation between digital media use, all screen time, and uh, one or two questions about mental health was equivalent to a correlation coefficient of about 0.03, which is trivial, which is tiny. But this is a complete misunderstanding of the data, because That was for digital media, all screen time. And in their own data, the effect for social media was more than twice as large. And their own estimate was the lowest, one of the lowest ever found. They themselves in later studies find that, well, everybody else is finding it's more like a correlation of around 0.1 to 0.15. But that's for everybody, all boys and girls. And when you look at just girls, it's higher. So now we're up to around 0.2. And that's about as high as public health effects get. If you want to look at the effect of lead exposure on adult IQ, it's around 0.1. If you want to look at smoking on cancer, it's it's around that too. So when you get a correlation of 0.2 with some behavior and girls' mental health, you would be completely insane to let your daughter do this. And this same team that is the main debunking team, they themselves published data two weeks ago, finding that, well, when you look across the ages, you know, that we still think the effect is small, but actually for girls 11 to 13, it's actually bigger. So if you look at everybody and all devices, it's small. If you look at prepubescent girls, girls going through puberty, posting photos of themselves for strangers to rate and comment on. There is no way to make this okay. There is no way that this is not going to be devastating to an entire generation of girls. That's the data talking. What's the experience? Yeah,
3: absolutely. I mean, I think any woman in this room knows what it feels like to be a teenage girl. And then to have this nonstop digital metric in your pocket that's always there. It's like, I feel like in the 90s, it was the magazine covers that are unrealistic body images. And they're always there. And kids are scrolling through them as they're going to sleep. and you know, especially as a young woman who's developing and growing up and like developing a body to look at these like insanely altered and unrealistic images is hugely damaging. And I personally, I'm fortunate that I'm old enough that I was, I think I was like 11 when I got onto Instagram, but that was before the days that was when it first came out and it was still dog photos and sunsets and what you're eating for lunch. And then it got more and more sinister. And I look at people just a few years younger than me who've been absolutely crippled by that. And, you know, every young woman is concerned with the social hierarchy and this is putting a direct numerical value on people. It's hugely disturbing.
1: Let me just add, there's one, there's an interesting new discovery that brings it back to a lot of our interest here with with FIRE and Heterodox Academy. And that is there are now two data sets that have looked at teenagers in which the teenagers say what their politics are, Mm -hmm. whether you're on the right or the left. And both have found it's girls on the left who they get depressed and anxious first in 2012, 2013, before any other group. And one study by Pew, it was the question was, has a doctor or mental health professional told you that you have a mental yep. disorder? 56% of Gen Z girls on the left say yes. Yeah. 56%, 56%. No other group is... It, some groups are half that, but so something is going on. And I think it's both the gender difference, it's also... Girls are much more interconnected. Nick Christakis' day- old data shows this. Emotions travel on networks of female friendships. Boys are more clueless and autistic. They literally don't pick up each other's emotions, but yep. girls do. And so girls don't just pick up each other's emotions. They pick up each other's mental disorders. They pick up each other's moods. So girls are much more susceptible um, to contagion. And girls on the left breathe, they marinate in this victimhood culture at a time when the progress on women's rights and women's pro- is unbelievable. The rights revolution was incredible. And all of a sudden, you get a subculture that won't believe that, that thinks everything is oppression, everything is terrible. will be paid 50, you know, we paid 78 cents on the dollar. They believe all these things. And so I think part of what hit us on campus, we didn't, so great, we had some suspicions about this, but we didn't say it in the book because it was controversial. We weren't sure.
2: We're dudes. But now, we, what? And we're dudes too. To and we're, that's that. right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But the data but now, that, that it was yeah. hitting y- young women yeah. harder was just that's right. overwhelming. So it's
1: a set, there's a huge, there's a three way interaction of age. Sex and politics, and the group that is most hostile to free speech—I'm afraid to say—but it is young women
2: on the left. When I when I give my you know talk on the book, John and I have been doing this update. We actually we tried to write an afterword for, for Coddling the American Mind, and it ended up being 50 pages long, and then it would have made the book. More expensive, expensive, and like, and so we, we decided to break it up in chunks and, and we're introducing it on persuasion. But how, when I do the charts of how much worse suicide has gotten, how much, since even just mm-hmm. since the book came yeah. out, how much worse self harm has gotten, people being checked in for it. The one that I really like, and I, every time the slide comes up, the spike in suicides for young women and young, and also boys between the age of 10 and 14.
1: Yeah. It's up more than 100%. So, one of the
0: major themes of coddling that you said essentially prepared the grounds for all of these trends was that kids stopped playing outside sort of in the 90s more or less as opposed to you know my dad's generation would have just been way more would have had to get social skills and learn to get around by themselves as at a much earlier age than than mine and, and Ricky's generation so one question I have is if that's true what have you made of the effect of school closures? Because it would seem all of the stuff Lenore Skenazy is concerned about and that you've picked up on in your thesis, it seems like school closures would make all of that worse in in addition to... So have you connected those issues at all? Oh, yeah.
1: So it's great you asked that because we were here in the home of Daniel Shookman, who came to talk to me in like 2016, 2017 about how the problem isn't just on campus. It's kids coming into college already. There's something wrong with them. And we need to do something to prepare them for college and adulthood. And I said, well, yeah, it's because they need to go out and play. And we need to just get Lenore Skenazy to be more effective. And so Daniel said, Okay, let's do it. And we created we convinced her to, to join us in creating Let Grow. I introduced them. Okay, okay, yeah. So Daniel is the is the chair of the board of Let Grow, which Great advocates program. for advocates for letting kids out. All mammals play. We covered. we have a really fun chapter in, in our book. All mammals play. They need to play a lot. They need to have a lot of experience, varied experience. They need to explore and get lost. We have wayfinding skills, navigational skills. Those can only get developed if you let kids out and navigate for themselves. And so they need a lot of experience. But what we do in America is we put them on experience blockers at around the age of 9 or 10. Once you get a phone and a social media account, that's it. There's not going to be any other experience outside of that. And so they're blocked from having normal experience. Their brain is not able to develop properly. And then they come to college and we're surprised that they can't take somebody saying something that they disagree with. So the reason why Gen Z's mental health fell off a cliff, I think, is a combination of play deprivation combined with too early exposure to social media. What happened during COVID? No more play of any kind because we're erroneously told that kids can't even touch each other because it'll be contagious that way, even though it isn't. So no more human contact. Oh, but spend all day on your device. So things were horrible before COVID. And then we did exactly the two wrong things, the two worst things we could have done, even less play, even more social media.
2: I held out a little bit of hope that the process of getting through something difficult and also yeah. being allowed to potentially to be outside more often could actually lead to some small set of, of younger people coming up feeling empowered. But that does not seem to be the overwhelming trend. Since we did these asinine things, like I mean, my kids attend public school, and we had a Zoom meeting for, for two-year-olds. Like it was adorable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was. About as effective as a Zoom meeting for two-year-olds. And they kept on trying to do this stuff. It was all device-focused. And meanwhile, you know, like, I was the parent who, my kids are now four and six, who went and was like, we need more free playtime. And I'm yeah. glad that, you know, Lenore's wonderful project, Let Grow, is actually, that's the one that actually there's been some real successes. But unfortunately, you know, the opportunity of COVID was squandered on screen time. So
0: I saw, I remember several months ago, I saw a story about high school kids in New York that refused to go to class, staged a kind of walkout over a mask policy, I think it was. I was trying to remember myself in high school and my friends in high school and what it would mean for us to stage a walkout of class over and sort of supposedly moralistic sentiment. And I thought... Well, obviously we'd be trolling to get out of class. Like maybe one person would feel it genuinely and the rest of us would bandwagon. That's not what it was. That is very interesting to me that that wasn't what it was. Because you know, I was thinking back to the snow day psychology. We would all flush the toilet at 8 p.m. the night before a snowstorm begging to be. So <laughs> that's that's the frame through which, the cynical perhaps frame through which I was yeah. looking at this. But it seemed like it was actually a deeply felt, you, you might call it a safetyist. You've yeah, talked that's about this term safetyism. Absolutely
2: psychology amongst kids. Motives are mixed, though. And I do think that sometimes the fact that this is also a status game, you know, Mm -hmm. that people are playing against each other, that it is a combination of deeply moralistic beliefs. And by the way, I actually get this extra benefit out of it.
1: But my son goes to Brooklyn Tech. He is a sophomore. And this thing happened. It was last fall, I believe, that this happened. And my son says, that there is a huge political and sex difference here. So, of course, girls, you know a lot of data shows that girls are more on the left than boys are at every age. Girls are also more fearful than boys. Girls also have moralized mask mandates more than boys. So once, the mask poli- once New York City finally relaxed the mask policy for kids who are not at much danger from COVID, my son said that he and a few other boys took off their masks. No girls took off their masks. And even now, here we are months later, The girls are not taking off their masks. I believe that the mask walkout, it was students, especially girls, who were horrified and angered and upset that they were going to have to be exposed to people not wearing masks. So it's not your generation's hope for a snow day. It's a moralistic, over-the-top fear of other human beings' faces.
3: And I would say that Gen Z and the kids in high school right now have been taught from a very young age to be politically active, sometimes from, like, preschool level and— you know, my school was busing kids to certain protests, and they all had a, a similar ideological bent. But you know, there's good and there's bad in being activated at an early age. But um, well, I think being active in democracy and thinking that you're playing a role, but unfortunately, when it's coming from an institution and not yeah. from yourself or from your social circle, then that is it's unfortunate. Not your
2: conclusion. You're, yeah, you're, absolutely. You're just
0: being, you know, sent out.
3: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: I was an idiot at sixteen, and I was considered a pretty smart kid but I knew nothing about the world.
1: Yeah, as as a professor, we're all supposed to cheer our students' activism. We're supposed to say it's so great that they're politically active, they're activists. But one thing I've come to see is that the more you're in a community that's moralistic, the more you suppress dissent. Mm -hmm. And this is why Mm -hmm. free speech is so important. The more you suppress dissent, the more you are structurally stupid That's the key idea in my Atlantic essay. Social media has not made us so stupid as individuals. Some people say it has. But my focus is it's made our groups and institutions stupid because the people who get darted, the people who get intimidated, the people who get shot at are the moderates and the leaders. Yeah. And so activist policies get pushed forward. We all know they're bad. We all know that, you know, the evidence shows they're going to backfire, but nobody dares say anything. So we keep doing it. So activists push institutions to change in ways that may be a pyrrhic victory, but then when people go to vote, they vote out the members of the San Francisco yeah. School Board.
2: Well, and also you end up with this epistemic crisis because like when you look at the things I'm seeing on campus where professors are getting in trouble for writing an article that's cited by people they don't like and they withdraw it. Like I've seen more yeah. insane stuff directly related to scholarship. And if you have an environment where, you know, the, the Dorian Abbott case was, was you know a very typical case yeah. uh, that we've seen. I was actually kind of shocked at how much attention it got. But this is a guy who wrote a criticism of sort of um, DEI, affirmative action, hiring, basically saying we should promote unmerit. And then he got disinvited from an unrelated speech on exoplanets at MIT. And I feel like, not that anybody's really thinking this stuff through, it's like, so do you think the public is going to trust experts from this institution if they come to the position that seems to be okay on, on campus? Basically, like you have no reason to trust experts if you have a situation, and this is how it makes yeah. it structurally stupid, um, it, one, just an additional way, that essentially, like, why are you going to trust experts unless it's actually a statement against interest? Like, the only time you're going to actually trust an expert is if they're saying something that's deeply unpopular on campus, but those people have to come to fire to keep their jobs. So
0: I want to end this hopefully on a, a note of what we can do to fight these problems, right? So one line of solutions would say we have to change the algorithms that govern social media in ways that reduce their profit-seeking motives and perhaps make them in some ways less appealing to our demons and more appealing to our angels. Another line of solutions would be we have to censor all the bad inf- misinformation. And that seems to be a a popular solution. And so I'm curious, in your recent Atlantic piece, John, you talk about how after the invention of the printing press, obviously there was this bloody wars in which countless people died. But we all look back on that as a temporary disruption that we had to get through in order to get to a new normal, a new equilibrium that was actually probably better. So what is that new equilibrium that we get to with social media and how do we get there?
1: So it, it certainly stands to reason that digital technology and social media could give us forms of democracy that are far better than we have now. And that was the dream up to 2011. Taiwan is doing some very innovative things using, using these technologies to bring more people in, to give more people a voice. So it's possible. But we don't know, so there's a certain, we're sort of stuck in a configuration now, and there's a, some other configuration that could, theoretically, could be much better than what we have now. Could we get there in 10 years, or will it take us 100? We have no idea, mm-hmm. no idea. Um, I don't think we're going to get there within 10 years. And I think the trends that what we have to keep our eye on is the strength of our institutions, which are fading quickly. So I've been focused, Greg and I have been focused, especially on universities, Now, unfortunately, because some other organizations that are supposed to be arguing for civil liberties have been falling down on the job, we won't mention names necessarily, but it seems like there is certainly a need for FIRE to expand its mission. But there's really two pieces to this. I've been totally focused on the structural piece. It was structural change that got us into this. So we need to change social media. We need to harden our political institutions. That's what I've been focusing on. But on my way up here, I was listening to a podcast with one of our all of our heroes, Jonathan Rauch, oh, who wrote the incredible the I mean, not yeah, so not just the book in the '90s, but um, Constitution of Knowledge, one of the that will be one of the three best books of the to, of this decade. And I was listening to a podcast of of him with Kenelly Foster, I think it was, and he was saying, you know, sure we need structural changes, but we have a lot of agency, and there's a lot of room for courage. Because he says, like, they're not nine feet tall, we are. That most Americans are sensible. Most Americans, whether on the right or the left, believe in, in liberty and, and, and rights and decency. And we're all cowed into submission from fear. And we've been cowering for a number of years. But people are beginning to come out of the foxhole. As Trump recedes into the distance, as COVID recedes into the distance, and as the George Floyd protests receded into the distance, I think there's a space opening up for people to say, what the hell was that all about? What happened to us? And so I think this is the moment now. When people have to start standing up for each other, for decency, for truth, it's hard to do. And don't try to do it on social media. Don't try to do it on Twitter necessarily. But talk to people privately. Reach out to people, not publicly, and you can actually win them over. You can intervene on other people's behalf. So listen to Jonathan Ritchie. You want a great book to read. of Knowledge. That's right. So I'd love to hear, especially from Ricky, like, do you see signs of your generation rejecting a lot of this stuff? Or are you the only one?
3: You know, I think <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just, you know, just I definitely exist in a microcosm in New York at NYU and then now Columbia. And so, yes. of course, I think it's easy to see these voices and in elite institutions just get amplified and and feel as though that is what my generation is in its entirety. But I feel very hopeful in that my generation is twice as likely as a general electorate to be registered in independence. We're much more likely to say that our political party is not defining of who we are as a person. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the result of, you know, the first election I remember in a, any advanced way is 2016. And so You know, we all watched our our Thanksgiving tables get torn Mm. apart by politics. And so why would we buy into this polarizing system? And so I think that there is a plurality of young people who are quiet, but who feel the way that I do. And and, um, hopefully we can continue to open up the culture to allow them to have a voice.
2: Yeah, oh and actually we haven't said this publicly but here is as good, you know, place to do it. Ricky Schlott and I are planning to write a book. We we're originally thinking about writing a follow-up to Calling the American Mind based on the fact that we actually have like someone who really had these experiences herself. But we were watching the completely insane reaction to people when the New York Times wrote that cancel culture piece was perfectly reasonable. <laughs> it, all the data points to this. People are terrified of it. Like, that, basically, anything you can do to prove that it's there, it's all there. Just people sort of wish it away. So instead of writing, you know, taking years to write something, Ricky and I are pit- currently pitching a book that I would prefer to call the gaslighting of the American mind. <laughs> Because I think that all of us know this is happening. And I'm tired of, and it's overwhelmingly elite, saying this, there's no problem to see here. There's no cancel culture. And really what's going on is is strictly over in this other place. So we're working on a book where we're trying to give some practical solutions. And, for, and w- for once and for all, say you really probably shouldn't be taking people who say cancel culture isn't real. You shouldn't really be taking them seriously anymore.
0: Yeah, well, when you write that book, you'll come back onto the podcast. You and Ricky and honored. we'll discuss it. All right, thank you so much for doing this. This has been great. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, ColemanHughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.